I know some people really don't like it when Star Trek does something like this. Drags everything down to the, you know, the crowned level, so to speak. I kind of do, as long as it's, you know, good, as mentioned earlier. Uh, several obvious references to 1159, for example, which I know some people can't stand. I actually liked 1159, although I felt that the conclusion wasn't earned, but you know, still. Probably held up by the weight of Kate Mulgrew, if I'm being completely honest. The episode starts, and we find out uh, that DePaul has decided to start drinking alcohol, which you need to be careful, otherwise the Vulcan people might be conquered there. Anyways, we then he then mentions first contact, and she's like, well, no, actually, first contact was a lot earlier. That's why she went to Carbon Creek, and they're like, I'm sorry, what? Like, I saw the movie, right? You saw Cochran, you know? <clears throat> I can't possibly be. Um, so then she starts reciting her tale. Before I jump forward, though, I want to touch on a couple of behind-the-scenes things. They mentioned that, that is, this is the episode that is one year to the day of the launch. So we're still keeping that whole time travel, or time tracking thing, although we're going to enter a new team of writers starting next episode and for most of the rest of the season, so I'm not sure how that's going to be continued, if at all. I'll be paying attention, because as ever, I'm very curious, especially about those little tidbits of continuity. Next thing, though, I can't believe my feet are cold. Sorry, <laughs> just I'm I'm kind of fidgeting here. It's it's the middle of summer. I mean, I know I have a good air setup, but God, it's just weird. I'm sitting here in a coat and pants, and you know I got my shirt on, and I'm I, obviously I don't have any shoes or socks on. Why would I? Maybe I should. Um, <clears throat> they one of the Vulcans' names is Mestral. I thought that was admittedly cute. For those of you not aware, Mestrel was actually the inventor of Velcro, although several other factoids about that are completely wrong, including the time, but still kind of amusing little tidbit. Also, uh, Dezul? Dezile? I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that. It's the name of the studio that put out I Love Lucy, which got a shout-out in this episode, which was done very deliberately as a specific callback to that, because Star Trek owes its existence to that studio. Really. They were the ones who fronted Star Trek, as in the original series. And so, given the timing and the presentation, it's just it's just an amusing little callback. There's this bit where Tucker's like, you know, you don't understand. You know, the first contact with, with Vulcans was at first contact. I'm actually amused that he didn't say first contact with aliens. I sat down and thought about it for a bit. So we've got the Greeks in TOS, Plato's kids in TOS, the Sky Spirits in Tattoo over in Voyager, Quinn, the Q from Voyager, Guinan, that's TNG era, the Davidians, same episodes, the uh, Skagarans, that's going to be later in Enterprise, the Briori, that's Voyager, and the Voth, if you want to count that. That's also not counting how many humans have come back in order to do their things, because why not? I just find the whole thing kind of amusing, considering Earth is apparently just a nexus of time travel. And so is San Francisco specifically. Go figure. Anyways. So they are like, okay, we've been here, we've run out of rations, we're going to starve, what do we do? They decide, okay, let's go hunt a deer. 
And they're like, you're, you, and the guy's like, this is a survival situation. We are allowed to take extreme measures to survive. And then the guy's monocle pops right off. This is where it's made abundantly clear that this is a species thing, not just an individual preference thing, that they are uh, effectively herbivores. Although they're not, they can eat meat, they can eat meat products, you know, eggs. But obviously this is the whole vegetarian thing, which, I mean, I've already complained about this. I'm only just pointing it out because this is where it becomes no really, no really, no really clear that Vulcans tend to, as a species, even, you know, 200 years ago, or 150 years ago, excuse me, tend to choose to be uh, vegetarian. <clears throat> I mean, no judgment, but as a species? Anyways, whatever, whatever. So, he mentions the extreme measures needed to survive, which can include eating meat, roll my eyes, and making contact with an alien race that isn't aware of that aliens exist. Uh, yeah, yeah, that qualifies as extreme, I think. Probably a little more extreme than eating a deer. Naturally, they choose the first contact thing, because... <sighs> so then we start the fish-out-of-water storyline... We have to have the sexy silhouette. You know, got to keep the sexy. Remember, it's a mandate. We need to see Jolene Blaylock effectively naked behind a cloth. Whatever. Although, all jokes and jaded nature aside, I just got to say that Jolene Blaylock actually looks really good in this episode. But I'm not going to apologize for it. She looks excellent in this episode. Probably because she's not in a cat suit and is in actual clothing. No, seriously, look at that dress she wears right at the beginning. Simple, button-down, very classic 50s. It looks good. I mean, I like 50s fashion in general, so I'm kind of biased. But still, I think it looks good on her. Anyways, I mean, I'm just saying, we already had the sexy quotient. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, they come in, they see the people, they're looking around. It's like, it's hard to believe people like this would be capable of launching a satellite. That actually struck me. I wonder if the Vulcans have previously encountered people who are more unified than humanity. Hear me out for a second. Sorry, yawn attack. Hear me out. What if... So, Star Trek has the Planet of Hats problem, right? And it is a problem. It is also a problem that has no good solution. If you're going to encounter a race that you see for maybe 20 minutes of a 43-minute episode once, how much can you do to flesh out that race and those people? Really. If you interacted with humans in real life now for about 23 minutes, you're not even going to get the tiniest sliver of a slice of our culture and personality. So, species of hats, okay, sure. The main problem is Star Trek usually portrays that as literal. So imagine if you actually landed on, insert anywhere on Earth, interacted with those people for about 43 minutes, in Star Trek terms, the whole planet would entirely be just like those people. That's kind of the problem with the Planet of Hats concept. That and the fact that it's ridiculous, but let's not get into that. I mean, we accept a lot of ridiculous things in Star Trek. The reason I bring it up, though, I think this is the first time it's been posited as a potential that maybe the Planet of Hats thing is in-universe, not out. The Vulcans are looking around at a, a mining shantytown in the 50s and thinking, how could these people ever actually accomplish spaceflight? Did you know that 
right now, as of the moment I record this, you could print a heart that can work and replace yours. That exists. That technology exists and has already gone through most of the major trials and has been proven to be a practical solution to heart transplant. Think about that for a second. Now, you're probably thinking, because you're probably looking around yourself at a, a level of technology and science that's nowhere near that, right? And that's the point. Tech disparity. Humanity, across most of its existence, has had a huge amount of tech disparity. There are places that have had access to tremendously high advanced technology for the time, and then most other places don't have access to that. And that's still true. We as a species are actually very advanced now. It's just not widely distributed. Not really. And that's the key point. And I just find it fascinating that maybe that's one of the reasons humanity ends up coming across so differently than so many of the other races in Star Trek. Because we weren't one line being slowly moved up the bar. We were doing this instead. Because if you think about it, that could lead to higher spikes and more booms in technological progress, even if they can't be properly distributed, it now means that tech exists for more people to build on, and it just basically, what, what I'm saying is the high end just kind of dragging everyone else up. Now that's from a purely scientific and technological perspective. Obviously there are economic and industrial concerns that are really a, a problem here. But again, within the confines of Star Trek and fiction, it's an interesting thing to think about. I mean... How many people do you know personally that you think you'd be comfortable with going to space? Because we can do that now. <laughs> We've been doing that for decades. Anyways, <clears throat> so we have the fish out of water story and they eat the pretzels. I like that they decided to make the locals friendly. It would have been really easy for this to go towards the other opposite cliche, which is well, like your kind around here. This is supposedly set in Pennsylvania, even though this is actually a town in California. But that's where they filmed it anyways. But I do find myself looking at this and going, I, I like the fact that they're friendly. Because, well, first of all, it's the 50s, but more to the point, that kind of lines up with my own experiences as well. And it helps push the theme of the episode, which is one of the things that makes this episode better, in my opinion. It's central theme. So I'll get to it in a minute. So the guy says, tell you what, tell you what. I'll pay up so you can have a little bit of money because they're hard up, right? Their they're car's correct and they're stuck here and they obviously don't have any money. and They just want to get some food. So the guy's like, oh, okay, okay, I'll help you out. But if I win, you know, it's got to be something in it for me. you got to sit and have a drink with me. That is astonishingly generous, really. So, of course, naturally... Uh, Naturally, Mestral wins. By the way, side little bit, uh, J. Paul, J. Paul Bomer. Bomer? Bomer? Boomer? He's the guy who plays Mestral. I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. We've seen him before a few times. Uh, he was one back in Voyager. He was Vornar back in Deep Space Nine, the Cardassian. And he has played two separate human Nazis across the course of this show. He's a good side character, though. Good, uh, good guest star. He does a good job and actually manages Vulcan quite well, so credit where credit is due. This is interesting because Blaylock in this episode plays Tamir and plays her as a typical Enterprise Vulcan. Some of you have probably thought that T'Pol has a stick shoved up her bum. No, 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 no. 
No, this is what T'Pol with a stick would look like. The way Tamir is played is callous to the point of cruelty. And pretty typical Enterprise Vulcan. Although we are drifting out of that, as I've already kind of noted, and Mestral himself is a good example of that. Anyways, <clears throat> so <laughs> they decide to go ahead, you know, play some pool. They, they actually spend uh, like a full minute and a half on the pool game, and pool kind of serves as a little background thing. I don't mind, but I like pool. I mean, I know some people call it uh, billiards, but... I'll never forget back, really stupid story really quick, back in uh, when I used to visit the villa my grandparents used to live at, probably about 20 minutes drive from where they filmed this episode, funnily enough, down in Pomona. Um, I used to visit them there, and my grandfather had a pool table that he'd kept in the, uh, in the garage, and I'd just go and practice, and practice, and practice, and practice, because I liked it. It, it. The whole thing fascinated me. It's It was simultaneously a math problem and a skill problem. I mean, I, I guess you could say the, the same thing about a lot of uh, sports, but something about pool just really connected with me, you know? I got really good at it. I feel safe saying this because I suck at it now. I haven't played it in literally in the decades range. But back then, I really got good at it and really enjoyed playing it. And I apparently unknowingly uh, pulled a typical con on people where I'd say, I'm not that good at pool. And then I'd, I'd absolutely trounce them. Apparently that's a normal thing. <laughs> Anyways, I have no problem believing a Vulcan with the level of precision and control they have over their bodies. And being able to math out the angles could probably be pretty good at pool. That's probably exactly why it's in here. I like to think pool kind of became a Vulcan thing, too. Just something that appeals to me. I don't think they've ever mentioned it anywhere else, ever. I just think it's kind of a cool idea. Anyways. So. Uh, they get jobs. You know, they... God, that just sounds so weird to say that. I don't know. I guess it's different from profession to profession, but can you imagine just walking into a town right now? Being like, hey, and just getting a job. Now imagine you and two of your buddies or family members or whatever also get jobs. So that's three jobs you just walk into town and get. And they get a nice house, too, relative for the time. My apartment isn't as nice as that. I mean, I have better amenities and, you know, I have more technology because it's my job to have this camera in front of me. But other than that, it's just, wow, they're doing pretty well off for themselves. Holy crap. This then leads to... Uh, couple of nice scenes. There's this bit where they see the nukes. They're doing testing. And there's this wonderful bit where Mestral says, you know, aren't, aren't, doesn't that worry you? And she says, it terrifies the hell out of me, but what am I going to do about it? Boy, that's, that's a feeling, isn't it? But then they, they, the kid starts showing an interest in math. And we, uh, Billy, I think his name was. He starts mentioning how you know he's wanting to go to college, and that, that becomes kind of a subplot. And He's basically portrayed as one of those Star Trekian humans. Now, I don't mind that because that's part of the message of Star Trek, that we are better than we are now. And frankly, I've met Star Trekian humans in real life. People who are interested in expanding their horizons, who are uh, interested in learning more, who are tolerant and understanding and respectful. I've met plenty of people like that. So that doesn't really bother me all that much, even though he's written to be in that archetype. This leads to an interesting argument and probably the best part of the episode. I'm going to go ahead and mention it now, because this is the main theme of the episode. Humans good, 
Humans bad. Tamir insists that the humanity is doomed, that their species is going to self-destruct. She sees them in a nearly universally negative light. Mestral sees them in a nearly universally positive light. He thinks that they are on the cusp of a revolution, and, I mean, spoilers, he is correct. Humanity does, over the course of his lifetime, hypothetically, uh, completely overhaul their entire society. Why the differing viewpoints? Now, both of them take it a little bit to a bit of an extreme, and both of them are wrong, and also right. Remember, diversity. There's a lot of us around here. But what I find most interesting is the why they both have those perspectives. Hear me out for a second. She mostly watches the news and stays distant from individuals. She is getting... Huh, I mean, I can make the joke that the only that she's negative because she's just listening to news media, which isn't a joke. But what the actual point is I'm trying to make is that she has zoomed the camera out. I actually asked that question a few episodes ago. Remember that? If you zoomed the camera out and looked at Earth like this, I mean, would, would you think positively about it? Because the more you zoom the camera out, the more you only notice the big things. And the big things tend to be bad, because they're either massive disasters or they're propagated by horrifically evil people, who tend to have more of an impact than someone who's a genuinely good person who's just trying to live their lives. Right? You don't see a lot of large-scale good things. Now, the good things tend to be small. And that's Mestral's perspective. He sees the individuals. He's made friends. He's actually gotten close to, uh, oh god, I forgot her name, Julie, I think? She's played by uh, one of the Cusack, uh, one of the Cusack siblings, and Cusack, I think. But, you know, he has seen the individual ground-to-earth perspective. He has seen people. And so he sees the positive in humanity. And isn't that applicable even now? Now, hear me out for a second. Because I, I have my own counterpoint ready for this. So don't, so don't dive to the comment section just yet. Not just yet. Because it is my experience that while there are bad people, and there are, there are some people who are just wrong. But the overwhelming majority, well past the 99% range, above that, are decent folk. You know, just heading out, traveling, uh, having a having a gentleman stop your U-Haul because you're, you're having trouble because of some sleep deprivation issues and actually paying for a hotel for you to go in there and try and get some sleep, right? Or maybe walking down the street, someone stops by and says, are you okay? And you say, yeah, I'm just you know, I'm hurt and tired and cold. And they're like, here, they offer you a blanket from their back seat. I still have that blanket. Like, I have possibly thousands of stories of decent people across my life. And I'm not that old. So it's easy to see why the individual perspective can lead you to thinking that people are good, right? Now, <laughs> the incredible catch here, and fiction likes to use this, is what if you met one of those bad people? See, that's the catch with the individual perspective. That's why it's also wrong. Because you can't just look at 5 or 10 or 20 people. You need to keep doing that. This is why I shared some experiences just now across you know, 37 years of life. Because if I had only met those people I just referenced and maybe a handful others, then yeah, people are awesome. But again, I've met bad people. It's dismissive to pretend those people don't exist and that they don't have an influence on things. 
that they don't affect things. Those people, one way or another, need to be dealt with. And I'm not talking about some kind of final solution thing. I'm just saying you need to deal with bad people in life. That's life. So, <laughs> this is one of the reasons I support his idea towards the end of the episode. I'm going to go to the city, see more people. And he's probably going to see some bad people. He probably saw a lot of bad people. I hope he was still alive when World War III happened. I know that sounds horrible. Because I hope he was still alive when World War III ended. And he could see how people really start to cope with things. I know that some of the books kind of carry forward this idea, and Mestrel was, in some of the books, actually still alive um, as of first contact, Cochrane. And I, I admit that idea appeals to me tremendously, so I'm just going to kind of adopt that as headcanon, if that's cool. But the point is, he accurately, towards the end of the episode, represents the concept that distant study is no longer sufficient. Just watching some scans on a screen is just going to give you the the thousand year view, the thousand mile view, and the thousand mile view is horrifically flawed and tends to emphasize the negative. You see how this kind of ties everything in, from both a personal perspective and the connections between uh, Billy and Tamir, between Mestral and Tamir, between Mestra and Julie, between Tamir and her desire to study humans, between Mestral and his desire to study humans and between the Vulcans and humans in general, and everyone and everyone else in Star Trek in particular. This theme is a fairly nice network, and I like it. That's, that's why I really like this episode right there. Unfortunately, I don't actually have much else to talk about. That was the big one. Uh, Mestrel's kind of light dating Miss Anne Cusack. It was a kiss. It was very pleasant. Uh, and there's this wonderful bit where she says, Why would you lie about it? And I'm just like, Really? Really? Well, I'm not going to say you're a lich. <laughs> uh, so there's, here's my thoughts about World War Three. Uh, she sees... Oh, Jack is apparently the name of the kid. Jack, my bad. Billy must have been someone else. I actually wrote his name down. I mentioned the problem with pre uh, perspective. Uh, the prime directive kind of shows up, kind of. We shouldn't interfere. And he's like, I'm going to help these people. She gives this line, which is just, wow. They only live like 70 years. Why bother? I almost feel like that line should have been cut. In fact, let me rephrase that. I'm, I feel like that line was supposed to be cut from the script and someone just made a mistake because that line is not in line up with her character at that point nor immediately after that where she is helping him with the scanner to help get the other people out of the mine. Also, there's that line, compassion is a human emotion. No, it's not. Although, once again, we see that compassion is a recurring theme Human compassion is a recurring theme of Enterprise. Although they, they treat it weirdly, but at least it's there. So then she invents Velcro. Wah, wah. And the episode ends. Three last points. First of all, you ever see the monsters are doing Maple Street? If you haven't, allow me to pause and very, very strongly recommend you watch it. It's one of my personal favorite Twilight Zone episodes ever. Like, the top of the tier, you know, top, way, way, way up there. Uh, might actually be my favorite ever. But <clears throat> what's interesting about that episode is that kind of takes the exact opposite take of this episode. There's a bit earlier where they mention if they knew that we were aliens, they would not actually be so positively inclined towards us. I'm not sure I agree, actually. I'm not. But again, that's going to depend on the individual community, isn't it? Hmm. 
Second point I wanted to mention, God, they got stupid lucky, didn't they? Their ship was just out there for, what, a month and a half? They, they tell the exact time, I forget. And nobody finds their ship just out in the woods. I kept waiting for that to be the dilemma. Oh my god, you're aliens. Nope. Nope, they're never found. Final point. Do you think it's true? Do you think the whole episode's true? Now I know, there's the purse at the end. So it's probably true. Which brings me to the point, why even be coy about it? Why even try to dance around it? I know that she's technically dancing around it in-universe with Tucker and Archer, but why? It actually, it, other than padding, it feels like it actually doesn't work for the episode proper at all. But I did have a topic there. It wouldn't surprise me that the Vulcans knew about this, and this is a commonly known incident that they don't actually share with humans, because, well, they don't share anything with humans, right? the whole helicopter parents thing that we've got going on. And I like to think that in the future, at some point when Vulcan and human relations grow stronger and the two actually become much closer, other than just, okay, we'll put up with you because allies, I'd like, I like to think that eventually they do share the truth of the Carbon Creek incident. And people are like, ah, and it, you know, it becomes a thing, right? It becomes kind of a little tourist spot. People can go and see where Vulcans first encounter humans, except nobody knew about it. I don't know, just food for thought. I don't have much else. I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you next time.